So, um, well, welcome to Beyond. Uh, this is our space for kind of going deeper into the text and exploring things that we might not yet cover on a Sunday. And so we're really excited that you guys are here as our test subjects for this new uh, experiment of, of diving deeper into the text. Uh, my name is Zach. I am the shepherd for young professionals at our church. Uh, and I have been, been so excited for doing something like this to uh, think through the Bible maybe a little differently, go through it in a more lecture style, and especially as we approach this portion of Daniel that can feel a little odd and a little vivid and imaginative, and sometimes things we just, we just have no idea how to approach when we get to biblical prophecy. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. We'll be covering uh, Daniel chapter 7. So if you have your journals or your Bibles, you can open to Daniel chapter 7. Um, the heart of this is that we will use this space to explore different portions of the Bible and different portions of the text that we might not yet get to on a Sunday or different themes or topics that we just feel like are so important to cover in a different venue and in a different way. And so, uh, this will be our space for that. A little bit about me. Um, I am a Biola graduate. I have, uh, my bachelor's from there. I have a master's in theology I'm currently working on my master's in Old Testament. And so for me, getting to dive deep into an Old Testament book is very exciting and hits home to things that I love. And the prophets are by far my favorite things in the Old Testament. I think they are just such creative, imaginative people using uh, incredible language to display what is happening in our world and what could be happening and things in the past. And so um, we'll be going deep into that together. So Daniel chapter 7, um, you want to turn there. Now, we're going to cover some different portions of it today. Um, so Daniel, you know, we've been following this narrative portion of the book, and we've been following these different characters, these different kings with Nebuchadnezzar, and we've been following narrative, but now we move into a complete shift in the book. It is almost as if we have arrived at a second book, uh, there's a complete change in what is happening here. Now we are getting all these different visions that Daniel had during his time uh, in exile. And they will appear from all the different periods that we have already looked at. And so we're looking at this vision here today in Daniel chapter 7. And what we're going to look at is specifically the focus on the Son of Man. And this character that Daniel sees here in the vision. And so... Um, what we see is that first Daniel is given this vision in which he sees these beasts, these beasts that are rising out of the chaotic waters. They have some incredible imagery and depictions of who they are. We're going to put a pause on that part for today. We're going to look back at that next week at the beasts and uh, this idea of beastly kingdoms. And we're going to really focus in on starting in verse nine and this movement of the Son of Man. So if you want yours open, go to verse chapter 9. Now, what we're looking at here um, in this book is something we might call apocalyptic. That these visions of the prophet, uh, or sometimes we would say this is apocalyptic. And that word can have so many different meanings for us. Uh, it can usually, for, for most of us, when we say something is apocalyptic, we usually mean it pertains to the end, or it is usually something that we would say is devastating. 
So when uh, a virus hits and when toilet paper is running out and the stock market is crashing, we look at those events and we say, this feels apocalyptic. It feels like something traumatic is happening that might be pointing towards the end. But the problem is that that's not always the best definition for when the Bible is using apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic uh, comes from a Greek word that means literally the uncovering, the uncovering. And what it is, is it's peeling back the earthly curtains. It is a vision where someone in the Bible is, is able to stand and see the full forces and full reality that is within our cosmic and earthly and heavenly realms. It is the uncovering. And part of that, apocalyptic literature can include revelations about the past, the present, and or the future. And what happens is usually we say something is apocalyptic or we're going to look at apocalyptic text. Often, you and I usually only think of one portion of these, and that's the future. And that we usually think of it as only relating to the end, but that's not just it. That may show up within apocalyptic literature, but it is not limited to just looking at the end times or the future. It may include things about our present, the present for most people, and it may even include things about the past. I want you to think of uh, maybe our modern example of apocalyptic literature would be the movie The Matrix. Uh, And I hope this doesn't spoil... uh, 20-year-old movie, 30-year-old movie for you. Uh, but The Matrix is uh, this idea that you and I live in a simulation, that, that what we are experiencing is not true, true reality, but there's something behind what we see. There's a real reality that we have to step outside of. Uh, in the movie, it's you take uh, the red pill and you get to step out and see true reality and step outside the Matrix. That is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is stepping outside the matrix and seeing what is real, what is actually going on. And so it's often very imaginative and often loaded with symbols that you and I have to use our Bible knowledge to decipher. And so this will be important because when we get into some of these texts, a lot of us are coming in here wanting to uh, find exact frameworks and exact dates and timing for end time stuff. And though we might find some things that relate to the end times, end times, uh, we got to make sure that our um, desire with an approach to these has a bigger goal in mind. Let's understand how this might relate to us in the present and how it might even relate to the past. Um, we are building bigger aspirations as we look into the text when we have this understanding of a pocket apocalyptic literature in mind. So let's seven uh, in this apocalyptic scene. As we said before, it first starts where Daniel's given a vision, and this is new. We've been following these, these stories of Daniel where someone else is being given a vision, and Daniel is the interpreter. As we move into chapter seven, Daniel is the one who's been receiving the vision, And he is now searching for interpretation. When you look at the end of Daniel 7, he is confused. He is the one seeking interpretation. So we have this role flip for Daniel, where now he needs to find the interpretation for his own vision. 
So the vision, he sees these beasts, and they're, they're terrifying, scary beasts. Again, we'll get back to those here in a little bit. Um, and in this room, he's watching all these beasts arise. We get to chapter 9, or excuse me, verse 9, and this is where we look today. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn, uh, that's one of the beasts that we'll look at next week, um, that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So this will be our text today uh, in Daniel 7, this vision that troubles Daniel, that gives him anxiety and leads him to asking someone else, can you give me this interpretation? So our movement for today is we're going to first look at Daniel 7. We're going to kind of go uh, line by line and just hit some of the things that are interesting and stick out and should require some level of interpretation. And then what we're going to do is because many of us, as we hear the word son of man, already have some ideas of things that Jesus has said about himself. We've already have that loaded into our brains we're going to explore that as well. We're going to also move into understanding what does Jesus mean when he calls himself the Son of Man. So that'll be our movement today. So let's first look here uh, in verse uh, 9. So he says, I looked and thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Daniel is uh, having a vision that is very similar to some of the visions the other prophets have had where they are within the throne, heavenly throne of God, where they are before him, and there is this scene where the Ancient of Days is on his throne, and there's usually smoke and fire and lightning, and it's, it's dramatic. It is something you and I can only wish we could picture. And often, this is what's unique about Daniel, often when prophets have these visions, they're usually in the literal physical temple. You think of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is in the temple, and then he has this vision where he is transported to the real temple, to God's heavenly throne room, and he sees the throne, he sees smoke, he sees all these people attending, uh, attending God and, and worshiping and praising him. And Daniel is given a similar vision 
where there is once again lots of fire. In fact, the throne seems to be on fire. There's fire flowing from the throne. And then Daniel tells us that there are thousands, thousands, ten thousands, millions before the throne who are standing before him and worshiping him. So it's unique that Daniel, who is in exile, far from the temple, is receiving a temple-like vision. A temple-like vision, similar to the one of Isaiah. But what is unique here is that in Daniel's vision, there isn't just one throne. In Daniel's vision, or excuse me, in Isaiah's vision, there's the one throne that the Ancient of Days is sitting on, and his robe is flowing from it, and there's smoke. In Daniel's vision... He sees multiple thrones, multiple thrones. And one of our first things we have to ask ourselves is, are these thrones empty? Are there people that are here? Who, who is getting to sit beside the ancient of days? I look, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. So he has his seat, but there are these other thrones that are surrounding him that we don't quite yet know who is supposed to be in them. So one of our first questions that uh, we ask regarding the empty thrones, and our possible answer is this could be the heavenly council. Something we often forget about is that throughout uh, the Old Testament, there is this belief that there is a heavenly council, that there, are, that there are these angelic spiritual beings who are surrounding Yahweh, and um, they are sent out on missions by God. They are sent out to tell, deliver messages. They are sent out to um, inspect things and just generally check on in what is going on in the world. And this is called the heavenly council. And so it's possible that, that what Daniel sees is these thrones and they're secondary to the one that the Ancient of Days sits on and that this is just him witnessing the heavenly council, the angelic beings. But it's also possible that these thrones are empty for a reason. This is a... Uh, this is kind of a big picture uh, response and answer as we look at our Bible. In the beginning of Genesis, uh, when humans are created, they are created with a purpose, with a vocation. They are created to rule and reign. And you see that reference there up on the screen, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And they were given this vocation to rule alongside God, that God wanted co-partners. Ultimately, God has all the sovereignty, all the authority, but God is a relational God and desires covenantal partnership with humans, that, that they were to go out and be fruitful and multiply and rule and reign over his creation, that he creates a beautiful, good world, and he sets up humans to take on this vocation of ruling and reigning within the world that male and female, all humans are created equal with this same vocation. Take the good creation that God has created and do something incredible with it within God's will. And of course, you and I know that in Genesis 3, that doesn't happen, that humans seize their own autonomy, their own desire to rule and reign on their own terms outside of God's will. They take the fruit uh, and they want to make the decisions on what is good and what is evil. And we've been watching throughout the Old Testament of how humans are awful leaders and awful kings. I mean, that's the story of Judges. That's the story of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, is that humans often fail when we are put in positions of authority, that we make really bad kings and queens. 
And yet, Genesis tells us that our design is to be ruling and reigning. And when we get to the book of Revelation, at the very end, the picture we see is humans ruling and reigning on the earth, and it's been restored. And so it's possible that this image that we see here of the empty thrones is the spot dedicated for humans, is a spot dedicated for us to be ruling and reigning alongside and under the authority of God. And these are vacated thrones. And we'll see later someone who's hopefully going to sit there and take our spot. The next portion we look here in verse 9. So we have, I looked, the thrones replaced, the Ancient of Days took his seat. And then we have this great description of the, the throne room with fire, the, the wheels of the throne. Uh, if you've ever read the, read the book of Ezekiel, you get this great picture of the Godmobile, this throne that he sits on with these spinning wheels, uh, which is just fantastic. And so he sees this and he sees all these people who are witnessing before him. And then we jump to verse 13, and this continues the vision. And this is getting to the meat of the passage. He says, I saw and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. So now Daniel's vision, he's before all these thrones that are possibly empty. He sees the one throne where the ancient of days is sitting and there's fire. There's fire flowing from it. The wheels are spinning. They're on fire. And you can just picture Daniel watching this. He's witnessing as these beasts who he's just envisioned are saying all sorts of awful things. And he's seen that. He's seen the throne. And then he looks and he watches riding up on the clouds one who is like a son of man. A wild vision, right? So he watches as someone is riding the clouds and one like a son of man. And that's our character who we're going to focus on today, this son of man. And one of the first things that we should fixate on is this cloud writing. Um, in the Old Testament, God is the great cloud rider. Over and over again, he is described as the one who rides on the clouds, which may sound silly to us, but it was a great polemic uh, for the Israelites. If you read the Old Testament, you know that one of the the gods who, are, who is constantly pulling the Israelites away from Yahweh is the Canaanite god Baal or Baal. And Baal was known as being the god of the storm, as being the god who rode the clouds. And the Israelites and their descriptions of Yahweh is saying, no, 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 your god, your god has no control over that. Your god, he doesn't ride the clouds. Our god rides the clouds. So over and over again, here's some, just a few examples from the Old Testament. Uh, there is no one like God who rides through the heavens to your help. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. He lays the beams of his chamber on the water. He makes the clouds his chariot. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. This is one of the main descriptions of God in the Old Testament is that he is the great cloud rider. Okay, so add that to your long list of names and characteristics of God, the cloud rider. And so this, this would automatically, if you are an Israelite and you're, and you're hearing of Daniel's vision, and you're hearing of someone who, who, behold, is coming on the clouds, your first thought would be, it's Yahweh. It's our God. He's the cloud rider. But Daniel sees something 
almost provocative to the Israelites. It is not Yahweh he sees riding on the clouds, per se. It is one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man riding the clouds. And you'd step back as, as, as a reader of this and say, wait, only God can do that. Only our God is the one who can ride the clouds. Who is this Son of Man? Now, this phrase here, Son of Man, might be helpful for us to describe it uh, briefly. Um, this uh, text is still in Aramaic. Uh, so if you know portions, a huge chunk of the book of Daniel is in Aramaic. After this chapter, it resumes and goes back to Hebrew. But we are still in the Aramaic, and this would still perfectly translate as Son of Man, which is a way of just saying a human one, a human being, a human one. But Son of Man just sounds so much better. And that's the literal translation, Son of Man. So we see this figure, he's riding the clouds as the way only God can do. And then we see the movement. He comes to the Ancient of Days, and so he rides up into the heavens on the clouds, and he is presented before the Ancient of Days. And then this, this is incredible. He is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All people, nations, language should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. And we get this picture of him being presented before the Ancient of Days, and all of a sudden he is gifted with dominion and a kingdom and people serving him. Who's the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man who rides the clouds? Now, what's important, too, as we, as we look at this vision, um, is it's a very simple image, but I think it's important for us because I think often when we reference the Son of Man coming on the clouds, we think of a downward movement. Usually, he's coming on the clouds. We're thinking he's, that he's leaving heaven and he's coming to earth. But in Daniel's vision, the Son of Man character is being brought up into the heavenly throne room. He is being lifted from an earthly human location, elevated up to the heavens. He rides the clouds up into the heavens. And that might be obvious when we, when we read it, but it's important to keep that in mind because so much of our music and the way we talk about the Son of Man on the clouds is we often think only in the movement from heaven to earth. But in Daniel's vision, it is from earth into the heavenly throne room. So let's look at some of these things here that the Son of Man is given. He's given dominion. He's given glory. He's given a kingdom. And then it says that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. It could quite literally be they should worship him. They should serve him or they should worship him. And his dominion, it's everlasting. It will not end. So all of a sudden we see the Son of Man, this character, this guy, a human one, riding the clouds, and they're being given, um, given things that only God is supposed to have. Because if you think of our movement through the book of Daniel, go back to Nebuchadnezzar when he sets up the golden statue, or if you watch VeggieTales, the uh, chocolate bunny. And he sets up this, this golden statue, and he is telling people, hey, I, need, I want, when, whenever you hear the music, you are to face and you're supposed to come to this giant golden statue and you are to bow down and people from every nation and language are to gather here and worship this golden image that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have set up. 
And you watch as Nebuchadnezzar and these kings that we've been following in the narrative of Daniel have been seeking what the Son of Man has just gifted right here. They've been seeking dominion, glory, kingdom, worship from people from all nations and tongues and languages. And we've watched through the book of how these human figures, these sons of man or men, have failed. And they do not receive the kingdom that is to last forever. It is always taken away from them. They are never given this, though they seek it and chase it. And Daniel chapter 4 in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, uh, where he, uh, his pride leads him into exile, and he becomes a beast. He becomes like an animal. He becomes almost less than human, almost less than a son of man in the way he becomes like a cow eating and grazing the grass and growing feathers and this wild image. But he becomes a beast in his own pride. And at the end of his vision, when his sanity returns to him, Nebuchadnezzar realizes and says that only the Most High, his dominion is everlasting. His kingdom endures for generation to generation. So we watch as Nebuchadnezzar moves from seeking to obtain these things to realizing that that is something only God has. Only God has full dominion. Only God has an everlasting kingdom. And so you and I, if we're walking through this, we're like, great. So we, we recognize no son of man, no human can ever obtain these things. He can never obtain full power. Nebuchadnezzar finally recognizes that only God can have these things. And then we get to the vision in Daniel 7, and Daniel has a vision that says, well, actually, there is a Son of Man figure. There is a human figure who will receive these things that are gifted to him. And once again, we're watching this Son of Man character do and receive things that only God is supposed to have. He's riding the clouds, he's being presented before the Ancient of Days, and he's being given a kingdom. So this is our... Um, maybe our conclusions on this figure here in Daniel is that the Son of Man is a human figure taking on the failed vocation because he gets to be seated on the throne, on those empty thrones, taking on the failed vocation of all humans. He is lifted from the earthly realm into the heavenly throne room as he rides the clouds as only Yahweh could. And while many human figures have before have tried to gain glory, worship, and authority that belongs only to Yahweh, this Son of Man is just given them. He's given these things. It says, His kingdom will last forever, and those who belong to God are given the inheritance of this very kingdom. And we see that in verse 18, when Daniel finally gets a little uh, explanation of this vision. It says, The saints, this is verse 18, The saints and the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So Son of Man uh, opens this kingdom that he's been given to the saints. And so when you're thinking of all these images that are um, being brought out of this text, you understand Daniel's response in verse 15 of why he would be anxious and why he would be worried, or as some translations put it, he is disturbed. You think about the emphasis for the Israelites that that God is one. There is only one God. And only you are to serve him. Only he is the one who has full kingdom. And now Daniel is watching this vision where a human figure 
is almost on the same level as Yahweh and is being given the same things as him and is doing things that only he is supposed to do. And now you understand why Daniel would be so disturbed by this. This text uh, was one of the most um, interpreted, thought through, um, dug up texts in the Second Temple period. In the period that Jesus exists in and the period before him, as they are waiting for God to show up and do something, this is a text they return to time and time again. Daniel 7. In fact, uh, there's a book that, that's not included in our canon uh, called the Book of Enoch. And in Enoch, there's uh, these visions that uh, he sees. And within the Book of Enoch, this, is, this would be a fun go home and kind of read this on yourself. Uh, if you just type in Book of Enoch, Son of Man, you'll, you'll pull up some great results. But within the Book of Enoch, which was written around that time, Second Temple period, and is almost an interpretation of this, they, in the book, almost attribute more and more glory and um, power to this Son of Man character. They almost take it a step further uh, than Daniel 7 in envisioning who this Son of Man character would be, and almost, in a sense, the Son of Man character has existed before time. Uh, so that would be a great homework assignment. Go type up Book of Enoch, Son of Man. And you'll see that there's a reason why they were thinking through this text. Something's odd. How is a Son of Man character being able to do this? And so as we mentioned, uh, we know that Jesus references this text a lot. In fact, um, when we get to Jesus, the Son of Man title is Jesus' most used title by himself. So when Jesus is talking about himself, when he's referring about it to himself, he will use the Son of Man. And we can picture it. I mean, a great assignment, I guess your second homework assignment, uh, would be to do a word search. Just type in Son of Man and see how often Jesus uses it. And it's the most used title by himself. Now, you and I, we know that um, when we get into the rest of our New Testament, that the most used title is Christ or Messiah. And Paul loves to refer to him as Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, but Jesus often avoids that title, not because uh, he doesn't think that's who he is, but because that title is so loaded with uh, authority and uh, tension to be called the Christ, to be called the Messiah. And so you have these scenes where, where Jesus won't really refer to himself as that, but he'll let other people say that. And he's like, you said it, you know, <laughs> it's, it's your words, not mine. Uh, but we see throughout the Gospels that, that Jesus will use this over and over again. He'll allow other people to refer to him as uh, other things like the Lamb or Son of God or Christ Messiah. And he'll say things that will certainly confirm these titles that belong to him. But as he's referring to himself, the most common used thing is Son of Man. And I think it's important because it's, it's subtle, right? It just it sounds humanly. In fact, usually uh, when we're thinking of, of ways to talk about how, how Jesus is 100% human, we often go to the texts that say he's the son of man. And there's good reason for doing that because it, it literally means a human one, a human figure. And so it's subtle, but if we know Daniel 7, we know it's loaded with messianic imagery. It's, it's loaded with this whole story of someone who is being lifted up and given dominion 
And so there's, there's a little bit of tension put into it, maybe not as much as Christ uh, or Messiah. And the other thing to note that's interesting, and we'll actually get back to this, uh, this question here in a little bit, is that the title is never really picked up again in the New Testament. So you see it uh, in Acts, and we'll look, actually look at that text, and you see it again in Revelation. But that's it. Paul never calls him the Son of Man. Timothy, you know, Peter never calls him the Son of Man. You, you don't see it throughout the rest of the letters. And so we'll, we'll kind of ask that question here of like, why might that be? Why might not they, they use this title? Oh, there we go. Um, so, let's, so let's look at some of the ways Jesus uses this. And when he's using it, it's usually in reference to authority. So in Matthew 9... Um, that bottom verse is a different verse. But uh, in Matthew 9, uh, we have this scene where, where Jesus is, uh, is healing someone. But before he does that, he forgives their sins. And he says to them, but this is so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And another moment where, where Jesus is in a dispute about his understanding of the Sabbath and his understanding of what it's supposed to be, he says the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. And these are just a few examples. Uh, but over and over again, when Jesus is referencing the Son of Man, he's usually putting authority uh, up front. That the Son of Man has a level of authority that has been granted to him. So when he's in this argument about what you can't, you can't forgive people, who are you? He's like, well, the Son of Man has this authority. The Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. It's Jesus' subtle way to show that he is in charge, that he is this Christ figure without even ever having to use the term Christ or Messiah, that he has authority. And this might actually explain for us why the title gets dropped. Why we don't see it picked up by Paul is that the Son of Man uh, is used ultimately to reveal himself as the Messiah in Christ. And so once he is confirmed and revealed as Christ, that, that title starts to get used more often. That is ultimately his goal is, is to show people he is Christ. And so once his authority is fully revealed to people, that term gets picked up. The other possibility is that if Paul is, is the missionary to the Gentiles, if he's going around and telling them, guys, let me tell you about the human like, I got to tell you about the human, uh, that might not mean as much to them. But saying, let me tell you about the Christ, the King, uh, there's one translation of the Bible that I really enjoy that every time it says Christ, they just translate it King. And it starts to feel less and less like Christ is Jesus' last name and more of a, of a title. And so it's possible the reason Paul doesn't refer to it, call Jesus the Son of Man uh, is because that wouldn't mean as much to the Gentiles, but something like Christ, the King, the Messiah, would. So those are some possibilities, some things to keep in mind, but it's, a, it's an interesting question of why really only Jesus uses this. So as we think of Jesus, we think of Daniel chapter 7, and we think of Jesus going around and referring to himself as the Son of Man, and we're looking at Daniel 7, and we're like, this is great, Jesus is using it, but but I don't see in the Gospels Jesus riding any clouds. I don't see him going up to a throne. Um, I don't see any fire from a throne room, you know. Uh, we might ask ourselves some questions of, of what does Jesus mean when he's referring to himself as the Son of Man? And what is, he, 
what is he referring to as far as the events that are supposed to unfold in Daniel 7? If he is the son of man of Daniel 7, when are these events going to happen? So our question uh, might be like this. Is the son of man vision of Daniel, of him riding the clouds, being lifted up, being given a kingdom, is that fulfilled by Jesus in the past, in his ministry? Is there something that happens uh, while Jesus is going around? Is it something that happens on the cross, uh, the, the empty tomb, his ascension? Does it happen in the past? Or is it to be fulfilled in the future? Maybe end times? And our answer to that is yes. <laughs> our answer to that is yes. Uh, that there is a, almost a multi-part fulfillment of this vision. Let me show you some things because I think when we often uh, look at the text of Daniel 7, we are only thinking end times. When is the Son of Man going to ride on the clouds and come back? And there's certainly that, and we'll get there in a little bit. But I, I want to ask a question that maybe we, we don't ask so much. Is, is the vision of Daniel fulfilled already? Has, has, has Jesus done the Daniel 7? <laughs> has it happened? So let's look at a couple passages here. This is Matthew 16. Jesus says uh, to those who are around him, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There are a billion different interpretations on this text. It's confusing. What, Jesus, it seems to be talking about all these different uh, movements and things that can be happening. But if we look at that last line there and we consider the simple interpretation, doesn't necessarily mean I'm saying it's the only or the perfect interpretation, but the simple interpretation is that Jesus is telling them there are going to be some of you who are going to witness the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. You're going to wit- witness Daniel 7 come to fruition before you die. And again, there are a million different ways to interpret this. But on the surface, it seems that Jesus is telling them, you guys are going to witness this. You're going to see this happen. And he's telling the people who are staying there that they're going to watch this. Um, let's move to um, this, Matthew 26. This scene is so good. So this is uh, Jesus before the high priest on his trial. Says Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I love this response by Jesus. Jesus said to him, You've said so. But I tell you, from now on, okay, notice that present, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then look at the high priest's response. This is intense. And the high priest tore his robes. And he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. So you think of the high priest who, who knows his Bible well. And, and you, you can hear it as Jesus is telling him. And you, I love this response. You said it. You said I'm the Christ. But I tell you this. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And you think of how provocative that is that the, the priest t- tears off his robe. 
that there is something. He knows the Daniel 7. He knows the vision. And Jesus is telling him, you're about to watch this happen. It's about to happen. Um, let us go to Acts, to, to the reference that we find in there. This is Stephen. So obviously this is after Jesus has um, been crucified, risen, and ascended into heaven. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of, of God. This is right before Stephen is about to get, um, uh, about to be stoned. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Notice their same response, similar to the high priest. That you're telling us that this Jesus guy has fulfilled and he is the son of man. So this is um, uh, where we move into now our, our, our yes response to the question. Is it in the past or is it in the future? We say yes, because this is a multi-part fulfillment by Jesus. On the cross, Jesus is lifted up. He is brought up. He is ascending in a very twisted fashion. But even in John three fourteen, Jesus says, you will see the son, man, son of man lifted up. I think he's very much clearly referencing the cross. At the cross, Jesus is given a crown. He's given a robe. And obviously it's out of mockery. But Paul will later on say that these things that seem foolish, God will use to display his glory. And I think that's what's happening here on the cross is that the crown is his crown. The robe is his robe and the cross is his throne. He is lifted up. He has ascended and his kingdom is inaugurated. This, the, the dominion, the glory is gifted to him. And John, Jesus will constantly talk about you are going to witness the glory of the son of man. So there's a, there's a portion of Daniel 7 that is fulfilled here. Jesus is lifted up. He's given kingdom-like things. And in this weird fashion, the cross becomes his ascension. Then we have his literal ascension into the heavenly realm. Where Jesus, at the end of the Gospels, in the beginning of Acts, uh, ascends into heaven. He rides the clouds. And then, I want to actually read, I have these Bible verses, but I actually want to read that portion from Ephesians 1.19. Because it's so good. Um, so it starts, this is a verse 19 starts kind of awkwardly, but it says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's like Paul has Daniel seven in his mind. He's raised, he's lifted and he's seated in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And notice these present realities. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body for the fullness of him who fills in all. Paul sees that Jesus is seated at the right hand now. He is King Jesus now and even if it doesn't feel like it this is our reality that jesus is in charge the son of man has been given dominion and power and kingdom and he is seated at the right hand of god 
And this is important because we look at this last part here and we say, you know what? There is certainly a future coming of Jesus. And there is a, a part of Daniel 7 that, that again is going to be fulfilled once more. Is that he will one day return in the same way he ascended. So Acts 1, 11, when the disciples are looking up and these angelic beings are like, hey, what are you doing? He told you to go on a mission. And by the way, you will see him come back in the same way he left. You will see him come back in the same way he came. So we think about that movement, right? The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is being lifted up um, from earth to heaven through the clouds. But there is, a, there is certainly a moment where the Son of Man will come back on the clouds. And we also see that in Revelation 14, arriving as the cloud rider. So there is a multi-part fulfillment. This is important because this actually reflects our understanding of what Jesus is doing. Is that when Jesus steps on the scene, he is taking the future and he is bringing a portion of it, a taste of it, into his time and into ours. That's why Paul can say things like, you are new creation. You are new humans. Even though that that certainly doesn't feel like reality to us, and we know that will be the actualized reality in the end when we're resurrected, there is a taste of that right now. And so Jesus is ruling and reigning. He is the Son of Man who has been given the kingdom right now. It might not feel like it. We might look at our world and, and it might not feel like Jesus is in charge. But this is the reality, and, and we get tastes of that. That's why Jesus, when he tells us to pray that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that is something we are hoping to get a taste of whenever we are going out in our life. That you and I, as we follow the will of Jesus, when we follow the way of Jesus, we are recognizing his authority. Every time we refer to him as Christ we are recognizing his authority, that he is in charge right now, and that he is, is leading us into a new way, into a new path. And so our obedience to Jesus uh, is to say, hey, these realities that we know will come true when Jesus is actually ruling and reigning on this earth, when we are new humans, that future reality, I want it now. And I want people to experience that right now. So when I follow the ways of Jesus, when I act and love and live like the Son of Man, I am giving people a taste of the future. And so this is our our way of approaching apocalyptic literature. It's to consider what did Jesus do in the past? What is the reality right now that this might be teaching us? And what's to come? And what's to come? That will be our look here in the book of Daniel. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this text. Um, Lord, we thank you for, for visions and creativity. And Lord, that you can work through all sorts of different type of literature. And that you are so imaginative. Father, we thank you for, for your son. We thank you for the son of man. We thank you that, that you are in charge. You know what's going on. You are sovereign over all. Lord, I just pray that as we go about our week, we would consider the Son of Man. We would consider Daniel 7, that you have inaugurated your kingdom. You've started it. We are here to follow you and follow your Son. 
So God, bless us as we go about our week. May we reflect you and reflect the future glory in everything we do. It's your name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, thank you guys for coming to Beyond. We'll be back next week. Uh, Darren will be here teaching. We'll be going through uh, the beast images in, in Daniel 7. So this time, Darren actually gets the hard the hard stuff. So uh, I got to set the schedule. So he'll be doing that next week. Um, just so you know, for the tickets, uh, you have to actually sign up each week. So you'll have to click on that same link and you can, you can actually sign up for all the ones you know you'll be at. That way you can already reserve your spot. And this will also be recorded and uh, posted later this week that you can send to your friends. So thank you guys. Go and be blessed.